Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tis the season for colds, if you like my new voice. It's also the season for tipping. This show is a lot of work. It's a part-time job for both of us. That's right, 20 hours a week or more. And beyond that work, we need to purchase new equipment in 2020. Equipment that's going to make communicating and taping across an ocean easier. As you know, if you listen all the time, Tiffany is in Rome and I'm in Seattle. That adds a whole extra layer of difficulty to making this show. Then there's hosting fees, editing software, new microphones. It all costs money. You tip your hairdresser, your barista, your server, your cab driver. Don't forget to tip your podcaster. We're working really hard to make something special in the hopes that you help pay for it. Make a one-time donation at thebittersweetlife.net. On your browser view, you will see a yellow donate button or become a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash thebittersweetlifepodcast. There are links in the show notes. You tip your bartender. You tip your massage therapist. Don't forget to tip your podcaster. We're here every week, and we count on you to keep this show going. Thanks. Support for The Bittersweet Life comes from Italy Beyond the Obvious. Planning a dream trip to Italy? Don't go without exploring ItalyBeyondTheObvious.com. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Something different this week. A holiday special, if you will. Years ago, I made a pilot for a different podcast. It was called In Black Ink, and it explored the intersection of life and death and art. It was a very different kind of show than The Bittersweet Life, but I think you might like it. Take a listen. Let me know. I'd be curious. Next week, Tiffany and I will explore New Year's resolutions, but for now, Shakespeare. This is In Black Ink. Enjoy! This is In Black Ink with Katie Sewell. I'll just have you introduce who you are, say your name, and what your expertise are. Oh gosh, what my expertise, well, how much time do you have? Um, I'm Amy Thone. I teach senior acting at Cornish College of the Arts, but I also teach Shakespeare at the University of Washington. My name is Richard E.T. White. I'm the chair of the theater department at Cornish College of the Arts. And I teach Shakespeare for Freehold Studio Theater. And I'm also a freelance theater director. I've worked around the United States in various theaters, and I've directed a lot of Shakespeare in that time. I'm the casting director for the Seattle Shakespeare Company, so I've been working professionally with Shakespeare since I was 18, and it's kind of my obsession. So what drew you to Shakespeare? Why do you like working with him? I got hired one year to direct a production of The Merry Wives of Windsor. I am in the waste, two yards about. But I am now about no waste. I am about thrift. It was in an outdoor theater in the Berkeley Hills. Our first dress tech, when I was sitting up in the seats, looking down at this amphitheater and watching children and servants and a barkeep and a minister and a fat knight. Briefly, 
I do mean to make love to Ford's wife. Chasing two women around the stage, this kind of vision of an entire world, an entire society unfolded. And I just thought, there's no one like this. There's nobody like this. The sweep of him as an author. I spy entertainment in her. She discourses. She gives the leer of invitation. The fact that he has empathy and compassion for people at the highest levels of society and the lowest levels of society, I think more than any other single artist, he has influenced my view and has also, frankly, made me a better human being. When Shakespeare's done well, it's such great theater. Um, when done poorly, it's like the most boring, horrifying, brain-melting event in the universe. But when it's done well, it's so amazing. And it's so rarely done well, I think, in this country, or maybe in any country. Oh, she did so coarse all my exteriors with such a greedy intention that the appetite of her eye did seem to scorch me up like a burning glass. It's impossible to do a good job working on Shakespeare without actively practicing empathy and curiosity. Really? Why is that? His work is always about something primal, which is the war in human beings between the head and the heart. What you need to always look for is the oppositions within the characters, the battle between the head and the heart, and how Shakespeare makes that a theme in all of his plays, you know, that our heart tells us to do one thing and our head tells us to do another. If we're lucky, we can achieve a precarious balance between the two, conflict and catastrophe emerges when one side takes primacy. I love some of his iconic characters. You know, he's famous for just stealing plays, just out and out stealing plays. In fact, stealing whole passages from other writers. But then usually, like with the famous folktale, like Romeo and Juliet, which was super well known in his day, he added the nurse and he added Mercutio. And those are two of the most iconic, subversive, wonderful characters in that play. So I love the people he added, the way he complicated the stories that he inherited. I mean, you just can't find anybody better at picking one word and then picking the next word. He illuminated and clarified, it sounds really cliche, but his human experience, I find magnificent. Are there certain themes that you think he captures particularly well? He's certainly fascinating the way he talks about love. I mean, as Ian McKellen says in his one-man show, can you find one happy couple in the entire Shakespearean canon? And you can't really. The Macbeths, are they kind of happy? That doesn't really count, does it? They have their happy moments. They have their powerful, sexy moments. I don't know if I would call them happy, but maybe. I think Shakespeare is very aware of human mortality. Much of his writing was done in the aftermath or during the time of plagues were sweeping through England. And so death was a common presence. The passage of time is he's obsessed with. Death, decay. You know, in our modern age where people live to the age of 70, 75, 80, 85, whatever, we're still obsessed with death, but it's not our constant companion. 
And Shakespeare lived in a time where death was a constant companion and a constant conversation piece because it was a time of wars and pestilence. Do you get any sense of how he actually felt about his own mortality by the way he writes about death? You know, it's a good question. Do you get a sense of how Shakespeare felt about anything personally based on how he writes? Because what I think is fascinating is that if you're a feminist and you dive into the canon, you can decide that he was a feminist or you can decide that he was a misogynist. And they're both really easy to justify. So one of the things that's fascinating about the book is how slippery he is personally, how very visible and totally invisible he is. If you're creating a theater piece, one of the most important things you got to do is find stuff that's high stakes. You know, what is higher stakes than the fear of death? What is a higher emotional transformation than someone taking in the death of someone that they love or contemplating their death? You look at Macbeth, there's that news at the end of the play, you know, after death, after death, after death, after death, after death. Act five of the play, when the world is falling apart. The queen, my lord, is dead. <laughs> she shall not die hereafter! There would have been a time by such a word! <laughs> Boom, that's all. You know, the last time we saw her, she was Damn. going mad and walking through Mark. the halls trying to scrub imaginary blood off her hands. I say. And then she dies. She dies off stage. He doesn't get a moment with her. Those two that were so close and so much in love, by the last act of the play, that marriage has been completely destroyed by the demon of ambition that Macbeth has caused to be unleashed in himself. And he doesn't even have a, have a moment I mean, it's one of the most beautiful things that Shakespeare ever wrote. She should have died hereafter. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. There would have been a time for such a word. I don't have time to mourn my wife. How heartbreaking is that? Tomorrow. Presumably the most important person in your life has just passed away. And tomorrow. And you don't have any time. And tomorrow because you're defending the world that you built for her, but which no longer has anything to do with her. It's become all about preserving power. That's the point of that play. The lust for power leads into the lust for keeping power. From day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Do I get a sense how he felt about death? There is probably some sense that he was scared. I don't think there's a whole lot of like open-armed Buddhist acceptance of the transformative power of that passage. Obsessive and horrified. Largely. I but to die and go we know not where, to lie in cold obstruction and to rot. This sensible warm motion to become a kneaded clod, that's a speech of Claudio's from Measure for Measure, in which he puts in the mouth of this young man this like horror house journey of possibilities after death. But again, that may not have been how Shakespeare felt because then he has Hamlet in the Act 5 of Hamlet say the readiness is all... If it be not now, tis to come. I think I actually just paraphrased that badly. Um, that wasn't exactly right, I don't think. But he has Hamlet offer a fairly benign acceptance of the inevitability. 
There's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow. If it be now, it is not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. One of my favorite Shakespeare plays, and it's another underappreciated one, is Love's Labor's Lost. At the end of that play, this character shows up and tells the princess of France that her father has died. And all of a sudden this play, which has seemed very spring-like, becomes autumnal. Death comes in the room and everything gets still. God save you, madam. Welcome, Marquette, but that thou interrupts our merriment. I am sorry, madam, for the news I bring is heavy in my tongue. The king, your father... Dead for my life. Even so. My tale is told. You asked how Shakespeare uses death as a defining moment. It is a transfiguring thing. Is that how you make a commercial hit in the theater? He was after something bigger. He was after the sense of what does it mean to actually grow up and be an adult? How fares your majesty? Boyet, prepare. I will away tonight. Madam, not so. I do beseech you, stay. Prepare, I say. Farewell, worthy lord. A heavy heart bears not a humble tongue. Is dealing with death, what he's saying, makes a person a more complete human being? Yeah. I think it's the frank acknowledgement of mortality. In the face of death, every moment then becomes precious. I'm 50 now. I mean, I don't think I thought about my mortality, except from totally Hollywood bullshit, mm, sorry, <laughs> romanticized ways, um, you know, when I was 20. I also look at my students who I ask to do Beckett and Pinter and these very difficult playwrights, these playwrights who were aged and full of regrets and anger and bitterness, and of course also had hope and beauty, but you know, I ask my very young, beautiful students to face these horrifyingly difficult playwrights, and I realize that my students feel immortal. They know, rationally, that they will die, but they don't believe it on the deepest level, and I don't think I did. But now I'm 50 and I have kids, and so I feel way more like, oh, my life's actually going to end at some point. I will actually die. I mean, like, what's so great is that I could die today. And how startling that would be. Like, I didn't get to say goodbye to my kids. I didn't go to the grocery store for the last time. I did, but I didn't, you know. So I believe that that will happen now, and I don't think that I believe that. You know the great book by Ernst Becker, The Denial of Death? He says that all human activity, and this is a grotesque oversimplification, but all human activity is a response to the fact that we are in terrible denial that we will all die. I mean, I think about that. That whole thing like, if today was your last day, what would you do? Now, of course you can't live that way because it's morbid. and it, But it, you do kind of go, I've been running around for years being a very busy person. Why was I doing that? I was diagnosed with colorectal cancer in 2003, and it came back again in 2006. I was diagnosed again, and there was a point where one of the best oncologists in the city said to me, I think you've got about six months. You should get your affairs in order. So it's eight years later, but I have to say, I really appreciate my life. You know, you appreciate your life when someone looks at you and says, you've got six months left. I think that's what theater can do. Theater can provide a metaphorical sense of what 
I experienced as a person. It can provide these kind of unifying metaphors for us. We can experience in theater through watching live human beings go through something and have an empathic reaction to catastrophe without having to go through it ourselves. And at its best, that makes us contemplate our lives and maybe, just maybe, live our lives with more curiosity and empathy. My thanks to Richard E.T. White and Amy Thone. For more information on them, or to hear more of our conversation on Shakespeare, visit our website, inblackink.org. Now a moment about the show's name, In Black Ink. It comes from a Shakespeare sonnet, Sonnet 65. And naturally, since I found myself in a room with two Shakespeare experts, I asked them to perform it and give us their interpretation of what they think Shakespeare is saying. Can I have you read this? Yep. Sonnet 65. Sure. Okay. How would you, as a professional Shakespearean actress, read this sonnet? Oh, God, so, but no pressure, right? <laughs> okay. Cold reading. Sonnet 65. Since brass, nor stone, nor earth, nor boundless sea, but sad mortality o'ersways their power. How with this rage shall beauty hold a plea whose action is no stronger than a flower? I'm going to read that again. You know, it's interesting because when I find my way through Shakespeare, I have to kind of read it word by word and figuring it out. But then ultimately, I think because it's theatrical text. I mean, the sonnets aren't really theatrical text. They're kind of an in-between because they were written maybe never even for publication. We don't know. Generally, faster is a little bit better just for comprehension, certainly for the listeners. For me, as comprehension from the inside as a speaker, I like to go slow at first. So who knows if this will make any sense at all. Since brass, nor stone, nor earth, nor boundless sea, but sad mortality or sways their power. How with this rage... Shall beauty hold a plea whose action is no stronger than a flower? Oh, how shall summer's honey breath hold out against the wreckful siege of battering days when rocks impregnable are not so stout nor gates of steel so strong but time decays? Oh, fearful meditation where, alack, shall time's best jewel from time's chest lie hid? Oh, fearful meditation, where, alack, shall time's best jewel from time's chest lie hid? Or what strong hand can hold his swift foot back? Or who his spoil of beauty can forbid? Oh, none, unless this miracle have might that in black ink my love may still shine bright. Oh, none, unless this miracle have might, that in black ink my love may still shine bright. Very nice. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Oh, that's a great sonnet. I have my students work on sonnets over literally 10, 15, 20 years. They've never chosen that one. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's lovely. What Shakespeare says is, that um, uh, we human beings, through our imaginations, have the capacity 
to transcend the darkest circumstances. Because in black ink, my love, my connection to a thing outside myself, a thing, a person, the, my true love, that is a light in the depths of darkness. If the world is a neutron star around me emitting neither heat nor light within myself, my heart, my understanding that I am made alive, not simply by something within myself, but with my connection to another human being, then there is always a light in the darkness. I mean, he's, you know, he's looking for the elixir, right? He's looking for the fountain of youth. He's looking for what is the magical power that can hold back the overwhelming, inevitable power of time's destructive force. And, of course, what he's saying, which is really typical, and it's a thematic thing that runs through a lot of the sonnets, what he's saying in black ink, right, that the fact that he's writing these things down, that the act of writing creates forever, that the act of writing is, in fact, a bulwark against time's decay. So that's what I think he's saying. You might have a different interpretation. So let's end today's episode. Listening to Sonnet 65 one more time, performed by the actor Joel Israel. I'm going to do one standing now. Because okay. this is a whole other... When I stand, I'm going <laughs> to knock your socks off. <laughs> I wish I had a stand. Stand for standing. Since brass, nor stone, nor earth, nor boundless sea, but sad mortality o'ersways their power, how with this rage shall beauty hold a plea whose action is no stronger than a flower? Oh, how shall summer's honey breath hold out against the wreckful siege of battering days? When rocks impregnable are not so stout, nor gates of steel so strong, but time decays. O oh, fearful meditation, where, alack, shall time's best jewel from time's chest lie hid, or what strong hand can hold his swift foot back, or who his spoil of beauty can forbid? O oh, none, unless this miracle have might, that in black ink, my love may still shine bright. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Katie Sewell. This is In Black Ink. And a quick reminder, don't forget to tip your podcaster. In 2020, we need to purchase new equipment to keep this show going software that will make communicating and recording between Italy and the United States easier. This show continues only with the support of the listeners who love it. There are links to our Patreon page in the show notes, or visit thebittersweetlife.net and donate through PayPal. Thank you for your support for helping keep this show going. Don't forget to tip your podcaster, and happy holidays.